Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, Genesis chapter 10. I'm so used to say Genesis chapter 9 the last several times. Genesis chapter 10 this time. We finally made it up to chapter 10. Chapter 10 verses 1 through 5 is what we're going to be looking at today. And this starts a new section, as you'll see as we read through this. Would somebody mind reading verse 1? This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. So Dave says this is the account of. So Dave's probably reading NIV over there. Somebody else have a different version. Somebody want to read verse 1 in a different version? You'll know because it'll say something other than this is the account of. (laughs) New King James Version says, Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. Okay, very good. So we have account mentioned over there in NIV. We have the genealogy mentioned over here in New King James. Anybody else have a different one? These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. All right, so Steve reading from ESV there has generations. So you can find that there's different translations will provide you slightly different wording for this verse. This is the genealogy of... That's in New King James or King James. This is the account of, as we saw in Dave's version, the NIV. It's also in the NET. These are the generations of, as we saw with Dave's version, the ESV, which takes also from the ASV. The ASV has generations of. The NASB has these are the records of. And then the Holman Christian Standard Bible has these are the family records of. Okay. So the word or the key word that's back there behind this that's being interpreted into English is this word here. Anybody recognize that? Toledot. We've run across it before. It's basically the key word that's used in Genesis to show that you're now transitioning from one section into another. All right, so each time Toledot appears in Genesis, it's introducing or concluding a big section. This word has appeared in other places. In fact, I can give you some of the, more, the ones that we've seen so far. It was in 1 1, it was in 2 4. 5, 1, chapter 6, verse 9. Now down here where we're in 10, 1. In 1, 1, it said, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and that took uh, that took that section all the way up to the next one, which was the Toledot of the heavens and the earth. And then chapter 5, verse 1, the book of the Toledot of Adam. 6, 9 introduced the Toledot of Noah. And 10, 1 now is the sons of Noah. So we've now gotten to the next section. We've moved out of the Noah section into the sons of Noah section. Some of the other ones that we're going to be seeing after this, in chapter 11, verse 10, it's going to go from the sons of Noah, which are Shem, Ham, and Japheth, down to the Toledot of Shem. So it's going to focus the attention from these three sons down to the one son. Anybody know why that is? Anybody know why Shem? Because Jesus derived from right. Good job. Exactly right. In fact, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is God cursing the serpent. 
Verse 15 is the last verse of that curse. Somebody please read that. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Excellent. So here you have in that verse a promise, right? A promise of a future deliverer. A future somebody of significance, big significance. Your offspring or your seed. So the woman is going to have a child who is going to have a child who's going to have a child and it's going to go down the line to eventually lead to Jesus. Jesus being the fulfillment of that. So all along through the family histories, there's this expectation of somebody who's to come who's going to crush the seed of the serpent. We don't know how far we have to wait before that person comes, but we're looking forward to that one. Okay? So yeah, as the focus starts to narrow down to Shem, it's because Moses is narrowing it down to the appropriate family. The interesting thing is, Moses is before Jesus. He doesn't know where Jesus is coming from. He doesn't know what family might, but he, by God, inspired to narrow it down, our focus and our view, to the particular family that we're going to need to be watching as we go, because that's the family through whom the promised seed is going to come. Good job. Turning back to Genesis chapter 10, then. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them, after the flood. Sons were born to them after the flood. Verse 2 then begins with the sons of which of those three? Japheth. So let's go ahead and we're going to put up here Noah. And we've got Shem over here. We've got Japheth here. And we've got Ham here. We're going straight to Japheth for right now. Who are the sons born to Japheth? Give me the first name. Gomer. 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 All right. I'd love to have a son named Gomer. <laughs> next one. Who's the next one? Magog. What was it? Magog. Magog. Okay. How about the next one? Madi. Spelling is M-A-D-A-I. Very good. Thank you. Next one? Javan. J-A-V-A-N. Great. Next one? Tubal. 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 Next one? Meshek. All right. Tyrus. Tyrus. T-I-R-E-S. So these are all the sons of Japheth. Next week, we're going to look at the sons of Ham. And then the next batch after that, we might even get to it in the same study as we do Ham, is going to go to Shem. Okay? But the order that the author has us focusing on is Japheth first, then Ham, then Shem. This is not uncommon in the book of Genesis, because here's what's going on. The author wants us to eventually focus on who? Shem, right? The author wants us to eventually focus on Shem. So what the author is doing for us is presenting to us the information to get it out of the way. So he's presenting to us Japheth to get it out of the way. Then it's going to be Ham, get it out of the way. And then we can focus and stay focused on Shem. All right. So this happens at least three times in the book of Genesis that I know of, where the author says, okay, let's talk about this guy. Okay, next. And he ends up dismissing the information after we've looked at it, and we can focus then on, on the information that the author really wants us to be focusing on. All right? So we've got these so far. It ended at Tyrus, but then it goes and gives you more names, right? It gives you sons of Gomer. Mm-hmm. Who are the sons of Gomer? These are Texas. Ashkenaz. Okay, good. Ashkenaz. Who else? Griffith. How do you spell that one? R-I-P-H-A-T-H. Sounds good. Next one? Togermoth. Togermoth. Spell it. T-O-G-A-R-M-A-H. 
Okay. Did you say moth? Okay, just checking. All right. And then I think that's all of it's listed for Gomer. Is that right? Yes. yes. And then it goes to sons of Javon. Yes. Who are the sons there? I think there's quite a few. Elisha. Okay. Next one. Tarshish. Tarshish. Okay. Does it have an M or an N at the end of that one? M. M. The reason I ask that is, is because there are some translations that will have an, a variant spelling of some of these names, and I think one of them has an N at the end. And then what's the next one? Rodman. So it's R-O-D-A-M-I-N? I have D-O-D. Good. A-N-I-M. Different spelling. Yeah. Like Jeff just said. Is that all? Okay, good. Yeah. All right. So here's what's happening here. If you're a visual learner, you're just looking at the family tree here. All right. So we're just looking at the family tree. This is the family tree. Descendants of Japheth, all right, one of the sons of Noah. If you remember from our study previously, we discovered that Ham is most likely the youngest son of Noah, but we're not sure whether Shem or Japheth, which one is the oldest. The chapter opens up with what order? When it says in verse 1, it says the genealogy of the sons of Noah, what order does it give them? Shem. Shem, and then Ham, Ham, and then Japheth, which is not the birth order as we know. But the interesting thing is, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the order that's given to us there in verse 1, is the reverse order of how they're discussed. All right, so it's starting with the last of those three in that particular order. All right, so we're starting with Japheth, and these are some of the descendants of Japheth. Now, let's talk about these descendants a little bit and see where this leads to. I should mention this as well. As we go through this information, Stuart Briscoe and his commentary ends up saying, this chapter is a veritable gold mine of information for those who are interested in the geography of the ancient world and the ethnic divisions and dispersions of the ancient people. We're going to end up finding out that when you add all the descendants together under Shem, under Ham, and under Japheth, you're going to end up with 70, all right? 70 different descendants. 70 is a number that comes up elsewhere in Genesis where it's the number of the people that are described as going down to Egypt at the end of the book. All right, At the end of the book, Joseph's in Egypt. His brothers come to Egypt by grain. You remember that whole story, and it ends up dad and everybody, and everybody that's related to Joseph all move down to Egypt. And the book closes with them moving down there with 70 moving down. So 70 in the way that it was used by the ancients is a number of completion, a number of totality. And so it's being used here as well. Is it actually, is this descendant, is this family line when we're all done going to be 70 names by accident or on purpose? Most of your commentators say this was specifically done. It was designed this way. Moses specifically put it together to be 70 names. In fact, John H. Walton ends up saying in his commentary, the list of the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth contains 70 names, and we cannot believe for a moment that this is accidental. 70 stands for totality and completion. And then elsewhere they say it's clear that he ends up picking and choosing names to make the number, the total number 70. Why am I saying that? Is he trying to lie? Is he trying to doctor the books? No, that's not what he's trying to do. He's not trying to deceive. What he's trying to do is present to us representative of the whole family from which the peoples of the earth populate, okay? Because if you remember, what was God's instructions to the people? It was, go be fruitful and multiply, right? It was, go fill the earth. So God's instructions are now being followed through. They're, They're being obeyed. The author is showing us that God gave a command and the people were actually obeying it. All right, so we're finding from one, Noah, come Shem, Ham, and David, three, from those three end up coming 70, the people are growing. All right, the number of people are growing. And each of these becomes people groups. They become nations, if you will. As you move through the list and we look through the 70, some of them are names of individuals. We'll find that some are actually names of cities, and some are names of people groups, 
And some are names of end up becoming names of nations. All right. And by nations, I don't mean like politically. Today, when we say nations, we have this definite idea in mind of what that constitutes. And used in this way and, and in the way that we'll be talking about it, basically nations is a large collection of people that have a general area that they call their home, all right, without any definite borders. Jeff, I just had a question. Please. Kind of off the subject, I'm sorry. Sure, no, go for Last, it. Last um, verse 5. Okay. It says, by their clans, with their, each with its own language. Good. I was just curious how, if you had any update on that. Good. Everybody turn to chapter 11 and read verse 1. What does it say over in verse 1 of chapter 11? Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Oh, huh, that's weird, right? Hmm. So the next chapter hmm. says everybody had one language. Yet here we find in verse 5 more than one language, it sounds like, right? Yeah. Read in addition to verse 5. Go to verse 20. Somebody read verse 20 and see what it says there. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Languages, plural, there, right? Just like verse 5. So in 5, we have languages, plural. In 20, we have languages, plural. Somebody read verse 31. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. Excellent. So Mike's observing there as he's reading, what? We have languages, plural, there as well. Mm -hmm. So it ends up, each of these little sections, as they're being discussed, right? The first section, the sons of Japheth ends up talking about multiple languages. The second section talks about the descendants of Ham, ends up talking about multiple languages. And then the third section, talking about the descendants of Shem, ends up describing multiple languages. The chapter closes, we go to chapter 11, and it says everybody had one language. Whoa, how are we supposed to fit that information in? The way we fit that information in is that when Moses is writing this down, he is explaining for his audience, right, which is very well removed in, in time, He's explaining to his audience how the people groups of their day, as they understood them, came to be, and how their languages came to be. Hmm. So in this chapter, in chapter 10, you're covering a large amount of time into which fits chapter 11. Oh. The event of the Tower of Babel story ends up being something that would fit in chapter 10 if he cared to talk about events in chapter 10. But he's not. He's talking about people. So in chapter 10, the people, as they're growing in their families and in their clans and as the population is increasing, in that time you end up having the dividing of languages. And so by the time Moses is writing, he's able to say, this is how these people came to be over here with all their different languages, and these are how these people came to be over here, and they've got multiple languages. So he ends up describing languages in plural by the time of Moses, when the dividing of the languages doesn't happen for us until chapter 11. Chapter 11 being an event that takes place inside chapter 10, in, in the midst of all that 10 is happening. Does that help? Yes, it does. Thank okay, you, good. Sir. Appreciate that. Oh, good. I'm glad you asked the question, because anytime anybody has a question, somebody else has got the same question. They're just <laughs> well, not asking it, right? <laughs> okay, there you go. All right, so we're looking, let's look at some of these names then. All right, let's look at some of these names. The first one up here, we've got Gomer. All right, well, let's start with Gomer. Gomer ends up being a people group later identified with the Sumerians, C-I-M-M-E-R-I-A-N-S, the Sumerians, who eventually settle in Cappadocia. Cappadocia, I've got here, we've looked at this map before. This is the map that we were using when we were talking about when, where did Noah's Ark come to rest. And you remember, if you, if you look at this, for, for points of reference, here's Israel. Modern day, this is Iraq. This is Iran. This is Syria, this is Jordan, and then Saudi Arabia. This is Egypt over here. We've got Turkey over here, and then uh, lower part of the Soviet Union over here and over here. 
Caspian Sea, Black Sea, Mediterranean Sea, Persian Gulf, and the Red Sea. All right, so everybody got their bearings on, on where the map's describing. So this first people group, oh, by the way, maybe I should say this too. If you remember when we talked about the different proposed places that Noah's Ark could have come to land, you see I've made little tiny uh, circles the last time we had those studies. Basically in this area, it looks like we're Noah's Ark. One of these may be, may be the real one. All right, so now we're talking about the people groups that come from the family that came off the Ark, right? Shem, Ham, and Javah on the Ark, yes. End up having kids. Where are those kids going to end up being? So the first one, Gomer, ends up uh, becoming a people group in the area of Cappadocia, which is basically right here, right? Modern-day Turkey, so in that general area. The next one is Magog. By the way, Gomer ends up being mentioned in Ezekiel 38, and also you'll see it in description of Tagarma. Tagarma ends up being the name of Gomer's son, as we've seen right here, all right? So Gomer and Cappadocia in modern-day Turkey. The next one, Magog. Anybody ever heard the name Magog before? Right? I mean, this is a name that reaches all the way to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, also appears in Ezekiel 38, 2 and 39, 6. Magog ends up being kind of up in here, Russian area. Right? If you look at that map, and you can see a little bit on a bigger scale there. It's basically a people group that if you were to continue this map, it would be up in here somewhere. All right? So it's a northern, a very northern, northern off this map type of northern people group. All right? So... Magog ends up being a people group, often associated with Tubal and Meshech as well. The third one, Madai, later on, the descendants of Madai ends up being the Medes of the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes, who end up getting absorbed into the Persian Empire later on in the 7th century BC, incorporated into the Persian Empire by Cyrus, they end up taking an area that's modern northwest Iran. So here's Iran up here, northwest Iran. So here you have a people group here, a people group here, and a people group here. Isn't it interesting so far? If you're looking, this is kind of the general area where the proposed locations of the Ark are. Right. It makes sense then that the people would be in among that general location. And that's what we're seeing. All right. Moving on from there, you have Javan. Javan's going to be mentioned again in the next verse, but here in this verse, you end up finding that he's mentioned in Isaiah 66. He's also mentioned in Ezekiel 27. When I say he, I mean that name. I don't mean the person. All right. It ends up being a name not just for a person, but for a people later on. And that's part of the difficulty in going through this list is because what originally starts as a name of a person, their descendants end up keeping kind of that name and that identity. So they become known by that name, even though that used to be one person. All right, and now they're now a people group that can be traced somewhat by that name. So Javan, it ends up being Greece. The proposal is that it's over in this area, along the coast, over here. All right. In fact, if you look, you've got the Mediterranean Sea, the Black Sea, and the Caspian Sea. You'll see that these people end up kind of being around the seas. So that's Greece. Tubal is Turkey, general Turkey area now, known as Eastern Anatolia earlier. Meshek ends up being Central and Eastern Anatolia. Central, Eastern Anatolia, so the same general area over here. By the way, there can be some overlap. And we see that in our own society. Can you have different people groups living in the same place? Absolutely. There's no problem. Especially if you get along, right? <laughs> All right. So here you have a situation where there's some overlap. Not a big deal. All right, as long as you're getting along. And then uh, Meshek, we talked about that one. And then Tyrus. Tyrus, we need to look at that map for Tyrus because Tyrus ends up, by tradition, I'm not going to say this, you can find this in the Bible, but by tradition they end up in Italy. They end up in persecuted and pushed out as history goes on, and they end up moving themselves over to Italy. Kind of weird, huh? 
moving on from there, Gomer's kids. All right, so let's look at Gomer's kids. The first one is Ashkenaz, and these become the Scythians of Herodotus, mentioned in Herodotus, uh, the area of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Here's the Black Sea, Caspian Sea, so this general area in here. By the way, this word Ashkenaz, it ends up later on becoming used, in, in fact, I'm going to read this, it says here, in the Middle Ages, Jews reused the term to refer to Germany, and later to the Jewish communities of Central and Northeastern Europe. So Ashkenaz is a word you'll still find today when it's talking about a particular type of Jew or a particular Jewish group. All right, Riphath. Riphath is one that has not been identified as far as location. All right, so it's still in the area of speculation as to where they could have been. And then Tagarma. Tagarma in Ezekiel 27 and 14 and Ezekiel 38 verse 6 ends up being expanded to being named Beth Tagarma, which means house of Tagarma. House of Tagarma would mean the house of these people, all right, or the, the clan of these people. All right, so Beth Tagarma. Beth Tagarma ends up being the far north and also Asia Minor. So Tagarma or Beth Tagarma, also in the Soviet Union and then in this modern-day Turkey area. So you see that the sons of Japheth end up spending most of their most of their time over in this area that we're seeing so far. Moving on from there then, verse 4, the sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. Elisha ends up being Cyprus. There's some thought, well, maybe it was describing this island over here, which is Crete. One or the other, these sons here of Elisha end up being associated with these islands. Okay. By the way, you look at this and you go, that's a little tiny place. You know, is there room for anybody over there? Well, if you think about it, that's bigger than some of these nations, all right? It's a big island, all right? It's a big island. Moving on from there, Tarshish. This one's a little bit of a problem, and here's why. Because Tarshish carries with it the idea of metal smelting, okay? So there's some conjecture. Is Tarshish a place, or is Tarshish a process that a place becomes identified as because that's what they do there, all right? So some of the problems come up because, well, number one, you have Tarshish being associated in a westerly direction from the perspective of Moses and Israel. All right, so when Moses is writing this, Tarshish is mostly thought of as a being a western location, but sometimes it's also associated with an Arabian location, all right, which is the other direction. So where is Tarshish? Uh, you know, it seems, sometimes it seems to be over here, sometimes it seems to be that way not really sure, so there's conjecture as to whether maybe that just means metal smelting and you could have more than one place being recognized as that's something that they do there. All right, But Tarshish, traditionally, if you have to pinpoint a location, some would say southern Spain. Spain's a long way. <laughs> it's not even on this map. You have to look at that map over there, the map of the world. Spain is across the Mediterranean. If that's the case, it's, it's the most distant of the locations mentioned here of any of the suns, okay, of the 70. So Tarshish way out there. If you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah originally, God says, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh, and what, where does Jonah go? Where does he try to get to? He finds a boat for Tarshish. Nineveh's to the right. Tarshish is way to the left. Jonah, when he wants to get out of town, he really wants to get out of town, right? That's land to get to Nineveh. This way is water. So he really does his best to go the opposite direction of where God calls him. All right, go, trying to get to Tarshish. So that means that Tarshish is a place and not just a process. It's at least one place, if not more than one place, probably known because of the process that they do there, but it also describes the, the process. All right, Good, great question. Kittim. Kittim is associated with Cyprus. So here, you remember we already talked about this island. The other people group, and I'm saying, wait a minute, this is a little tiny place. Can you even have enough room for people there? 
Yeah, you could probably fit more than one people group on Cyprus. But like I said, the other one may have the possibility of Crete, whereas this one, Kittim, is only associated with Cyprus. Either Kittim sharing Cyprus with relatives, or the relatives are over in Crete and Kittim staying here. The next one, Dodanim or Rodanim. Some would propose it's Rodanim, and they would say that's Rhodes, which is an island off Greece right here, or off Turkey, but part of Greece. All these are Greece, that one being an island. So they would say, it's a people group that's, it should say Rodanim, and therefore that's where this is. And the other say, no, no, I'm pretty sure our texts are Dodanim, which would be associated with the city of Tyre, which is over here. Okay? That's all of them, then. That's all of them that we have for Japheth. So if you look at the general areas, what have you got? You've got these people spreading out, generally radiating from the areas of the Noah's Ark possible locations, and what ends up being, for Moses and the Israelites' perspective, people that are north, and they are northwest and northeast of their location. Okay? So Japheth ends up filling in the areas of north, northeast, and northwest of where Moses is writing to his audience of Israel. Okay? Verse 5, what does it say there in verse 5? As from these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands. Everyone according to his language, according to their families, and to their nation. Excellent, thank you. And the phrase I want to draw your attention to in particular is the coastlands. All right. So a lot of these names, your commentators would say, these are associated with islands. So you've got people that are near the Black Sea, or the Caspian Sea, or the Mediterranean Sea. These are seafaring people. They're basically saying that the descendants of Japheth are known for being seafaring people. They don't have exclusive seafaring people in them. You will see some other seafaring people later on. But as a clan or as a group or as descendants of one of these three brothers, they get the reputation most for being seafaring people. All right. Another word that I want to draw your attention to in, in chapter 10, verse 5, and it was in the verse that we just read, which you're using New King James Version, I can tell. Yes. Anybody else see something different there for that one? And I'm using New King James as well. Maritime peoples. Maritime people. Go a little bit further than that. Your verse might not have it. Here's a couple of the different readings. All right. New King James says the coastland peoples of the Gentiles. King James says the Isles of the Gentiles. Whereas the other versions would say the Isles of the Nations, the coastlands of the nations, the coastland peoples, or the coastal peoples, the maritime peoples, the seafaring peoples. All right. You notice the difference. We have Gentile in our version. The word behind it is goy. This is the first occurrence of the word goy in the Bible. And we have it two times in this verse. Goy ends up becoming somewhat synonymous with Gentiles. Goy can be translated other ways as well, though. In fact, this is a word that occurs many times in our Bible, over 550 times in our Bible, in our Old Testament alone. All right? In Hebrew, the word is goy. In Greek, the word is ethnos. And you can, hear the, you can hear the sound of it, right? You can hear the relationship to an English word of ethnicity. All right? So in Hebrew, though, it's goy. Goy is often translated as people or peoples. Nation, or nations, or Gentiles, or Gentiles, or even heathen. Heathen. What's a heathen? What is a heathen? Somebody want to give it just a street definition of heathen? Would it be a righteous person? No. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> Probably the opposite of that, right? For you, an unrighteous person, or somebody who's engaged in cultic behavior. You know, you got all these images in your mind, and you're like, ugh, that's, that's a person I don't want my daughter to date. You know, that kind of thing. It's the heathen, right? Boy becomes a word that has, on occasion, depending on the context, some disdain associated with it. Here it doesn't have it yet. Here it's just generic. Here it's being used to describe peoples or nations. 
Goy is actually a singular. In, in this form, it's singular. The plural is goyim. But it's sometimes translated as a plural. All right, so it can be people or peoples, nation or nations, heathen or heathens, or Gentile or Gentiles, depending on the context. In fact, in our New King James Version, as we're reading through this right now, if you look at that verse, verse 5, from these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their land. The coastland peoples of the Gentiles. Does your, does your version, I'm not sure if the online version has it or not, have a different font for peoples? No, it's just same font. Same font, okay. In printed version, now Mike, does yours have a different font? Yes. What does it have? Is it italics? Yeah, is that italics? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> in printed versions, what that means is, if you see an italicized word in your New King James in the printed form, what that's telling you is that word is not actually in the original. So in the original, you would have it without that word. So it would actually read something like this. It would read, from the coastland of the Gentiles, from the coastland of the Goy. Why did they put a word in? Why did they add the word peoples there? Anybody want to take a guess? Probably because the people back then understood it to be peoples. I don't know. Well, you're, kind of on the, you're kind of on the right track. They did it for our benefit to help us to understand better what the sense would be. Yeah. All right. So they added, they inserted a word to help us be less inclined to mistake something as we're reading through it. So they added a word to help the meaning convey. Because, you know, in one language, translating a word to another language... You're not always going to have a perfect fit. You're not always going to have one exact word that's going to fit for this exact word. So you might need a few extra words put in to help you to more clearly understand what that one word is in the original language. So here they add the word people to help us to understand, oh, it's talking about people in general. Why is this interesting for our translations that put Gentiles? Why is that interesting? Why would New King James and King James, why, why is that intriguing that they would have Gentiles here? It's intriguing because what is a Gentile? What not is a Gentile? Jews. It's not, not Jews. Jews. But there's no Jews yet. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like saying, okay, and these are the people group B. And you're going, wait a minute. <laughs> Where's people group A? You haven't even told me who people group A is. How can we have a people group B? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting that they would do that, that the King James and the New King James would put Gentiles in there when there's no other, there's no Jews yet. That's many children down. So it's interesting why the New King James does that is because the New King James adopts the wording or tries to stick with the wording as much as they can of the King James. The King James, when it was originally done, the reason that they did is because the word goy ends up becoming Gentiles in a lot of places that it was translated, and so they just stuck it right here as well. And the New King James didn't change it. They just stuck with the King James version, leaving goy in there. Now as time goes on, Goy is going to end up becoming something that describes more than just peoples or nations. It ends up being more specific to non-Jews. Goy ends up being a non-Jew descriptor. So you end up having, there's Jews in the world and then there's Goy. All right, there's Jews and Goy, there's Jews and Gentiles. So it ends up later on, kind of the nuance of the word ends up changing. I think that's as far as we're going to get today. <laughs> Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Very good, Jeff. All right, praise God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this study. We thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord. That's such a blessing. A blessing to be able to come together in freedom. To be able to come together and open your word that it's not a crime, that we're not concerned that somebody's going to arrest us and take us away and kill us, as happens even this day. Help us, Lord, not to take that for granted. Help us to make the most of the opportunities that we have in this time where we still can enjoy this freedom. Help us, Lord, to appreciate it. And help us, Lord, not to 
live for ourselves so much as to live for you. Thank you, Lord. Please help our brothers and sisters in other places in the world where there is persecution for having a Bible, for reading your Bible, for having a Bible study, for calling themselves Christian. We pray that you would help them, Lord, by giving them the strength and giving them the courage and giving them the fortitude that they would need as we would see you gave to Stephen. As he was being martyred, he was able to devote himself fully to you. We pray that you would help our brothers and sisters in other places to be strengthened by you, that they'd be able, like Stephen, to look up into heaven and instead of seeing you seated on your throne, they'd see you standing. God, we look forward to that day when we will be able to see you at your throne. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.